think that was a Richard then, even. <sighs> Have I done something wrong? It's Sunday. <laughs> Hi everyone, if you want to be turning to John chapter 18, we're going to be looking at that for a bit. Uh, for those of you who've been with us regularly, you know we've been going through John's Gospel, uh, and this is where we've arrived. We've arrived at this passage, which the added title, at least in my, in my Bible, is Jesus Arrested. This is where we've come to. I'm going to read John chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, Oh, suspense, I've lost my place. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Twenty-one years ago, I came to university in Sheffield, uh, and on one day, uh, well, during, I think, my first year, uh, I'd gone back to my parents for a weekend, and it was Sunday evening, and I had to get a train back to Sheffield. On a Sunday evening in the early 2000s, I don't know if it's better or worse now, it wasn't great then, but we got it, we got it sorted, I had a ticket, I had a train that I could catch, there was one issue, I had to change at Birmingham New Street. Birmingham New Street's been well redeveloped over the years, but still, when you get to Birmingham New Street, the platforms are basically like a dungeon. 
It's horrendous. Anyway, I had to change at Birmingham New Street, but it was all sorted. I had the plan, I had the ticket, just have to change at Birmingham New Street. Only I get to the station, Bristol Temple Meads, which is where I was coming from, and find that the train from Bristol to Birmingham was being diverted via Oxford. For those of you whose geography of the southwest of England is not perfect, Birmingham to Bristol is kind of like this. Birmingham to Bristol via Oxford is kind of like this. It's like twice as far. Maybe not twice as far, I'm exaggerating now. But anyway, I have this connection in Birmingham. And funnily enough, by going via Oxford, we didn't get there in time. So now I am at Birmingham New Street. About nine o'clock on a Sunday evening. How many trains do you think were going north towards Sheffield from Birmingham New Street at nine o'clock on a Sunday evening from Birmingham? Zero. So what do we do? What are we going to do? There's about probably about 100 of us who have piled off this train who are thinking we're going north, we're going further north. We've got to get the connection. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Finally, we found an official. Official said there's one option. You've got one chance. There's a train to Leicester. Which leaves now. So we all ran to the... But by the way, I've got bags from home. I'm carrying a printer. <laughs> this is first year of university study. Some of you may be able to relate to this right now. But we got on this train to Leicester. It is absolutely ram-packed. We stand all the way to Leicester. Packed in. The conductor on that train thought this was hilarious. We got to Leicester, and of course, when you get to Leicester on a Sunday evening, there are loads of trains to Sheffield. It was amazing. So this story does have an easy and happy ending. I got to Leicester and stepped onto a train and casually rode back to Sheffield. Everything was fine. Why am I telling you this story? I'd made my plans. I'd got my ticket, but as events unfolded, I realized I was not in any way in complete control of this situation. I couldn't control where the train was going. I couldn't control why someone decided it's a good idea on a Sunday evening to divert a train from Bristol to Birmingham via Oxford. I couldn't control how many trains were put on. I was not in complete control of the situation. I was kind of carried along by the events that were taking place. You may have similar stories. Maybe as trivial and even forced to be comical as that one, or maybe more serious ones, where you can just feel like, I'm not in control here. What's going on here? Someone else has got all the power, or events are just taking charge. However trivial or serious. Well, in John 18, we see the time has come. And on first reading of this, we could just see man, Jesus and his disciples, they go out and man, they are just carried away by the events that are taking place. They've crossed, they go out, they've had this wonderful time in the upper room, Jesus talking to them, praying for them, explaining to them this is what's going to happen, preparing them for what's going to happen, a wonderful time over the Last Supper. When he finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. They've gone out of the city of Jerusalem, across this valley to the Mount of Olives, 
to a garden which we'll see in the other Gospels named as Gethsemane. And while they're there, Judas turns up. And Judas turns up not on his own, but with a massive, with a big crowd made up of the Jewish temple authorities and also some Roman soldiers. And we see the arrest of Jesus play out. We see this kind of fairly hectic, fast-moving set of circumstances. We see this powerful group. They're official. They're exercising the state authority. They're coming with weapons, arresting a man who's unarmed and his small group of companions, one of whom seems to have a sword, but mostly unarmed. Who's in control here? On first glance, it would be easy to see Jesus and his friends are just caught up in circumstances beyond their control and carried along. Much as I was on that train on that Sunday night. But we're going to look at the different characters here and ask ourselves this question, who is in control? What's actually going on here? Starting here with Judas. Judas features here. Judas has made his choice. Judas, a few chapters back, doesn't seem to like the way this is going. And Judas decides, I'll change this. I've got my plan, my purpose. I'll use it for my advantage. He's gone to the chief priest and said, how much will you give me? How much will you pay me if I give you Jesus? I've made my choice. I'm going to gain from it. I've got what I want from it. He's decided to betray Jesus. John has been pointing us in the direction through the chapters of his gospel. Back in chapter 6 and verse 70, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, Jesus replies, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. A bit later on in chapter 12, and verse 4. We see Judas doesn't seem to understand what's going on. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. What's he objecting to? He's objecting to Mary pouring the perfume on Jesus. Why wasn't it sold and the money given to the poor? And we get a glimpse into his heart. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. But Judas has made his choice. We could look back in chapter 13 and see where he goes out. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. It's the one I dip the bread in the bowl. I give the bread to that I dipped in the bowl. And he says, yes, Judas, it's you. Go and do what you've got planned. Judas has made his choice. He's decided to betray him. He's working out what he wants to do. But Judas isn't in control here. We see in John chapter 13 and verse 2 how Judas is used by the devil in the midst of this. 
In John chapter 13, verse 2, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. He's been used, he's been used by the devil. He's now just a guide for more powerful forces who are coming. But perhaps it'd be tempting for Judas to think, I make my own choices. No one tells me what to do. It's my plan. I'm in control. And for us today in our, particularly in the UK, in our individualistic culture, our look out for number one culture, our you are your own person and no one can tell you who you are. No one can tell you what's best for you. No one can tell you uh, what you need to do. It's just you. We could be so tempted to think the same. But we see here it's not true. Judas is being used by Satan. Now he's a pawn of the Jews and the Romans. Incidentally, see how sidelined Judas is in John's account. You'll immediately be thinking, looking back in the synoptic, but doesn't Judas go and give Jesus a kiss and that's how he's betrayed? Well, yes, he does. But John doesn't even bother to report that. What does John say? Jesus has gone out in verse uh, verse 4, asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Brackets, and maybe the brackets aren't original. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. Judas isn't in control here. We can think, I'm in control. I'm me. No one can tell me what to do. But ultimately, the Bible tells us No. We're not in complete control. In fact, the Bible would go, we look in Romans chapter 6, the Bible will tell us clearly, actually, either you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. It's not you who's in control. It's not you. I make my own choices. I'm the one who does it. In Romans chapter 6, Paul's talking in verse 6, talking to believers, for we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. He goes on later on in that passage, verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and now you can do whatever you like. No, you've been set free from sin and now you've become slaves to righteousness. The Bible teaches us we're not just individuals on our own. We're dependent on others. We affect others. We're part of a body. And ultimately, I'm not in control. I'm not Lord over my own life. I don't free to do whatever I want. Ultimately, the words of the old chorus are true. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's in control. As Clara read earlier on from Colossians chapter 1, in those wonderful verses there, it talks about Jesus holding all things together. And in Hebrews 1 and verse 3, Hebrews 1 and verse 3, 
very similar sentiment. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful words. As we see Judas's example, we see Judas's part in the story. We're called to humble ourselves. We're not in control. We're responsible to make decisions. Jesus is not absolved of anything. But we're reliant on God. In every decision we make, in every aspect of our lives, in everything, even the air we breathe, we are reliant on a God who made everything. Created all things and holds all things together. Judas is not in control. Judas is not God, and neither are we. So let's look at someone else in the story. The disciples, and primarily Peter and his sword. You see, the disciples are in the midst of this scene. The disciples have been in the upper room with Jesus. Now they're in the garden. They're presented with a crowd, armed, threatening, coming with the intent of hunting down and arresting Jesus. Weapons, torches, prepared for a hunt across the countryside. In fact, if we look at this story, in a sense, with our human eyes, the disciples are most obviously not in control here. They follow Jesus to the garden. Now they're seeing this unfold. What's going on here? You can imagine them fearful, confused, unsure. What's going on? Then we see Peter looks to take some control. He looks to act. And right on the surface here, wow, there's some, there's some boldness and some courage here from Peter. If somewhat misguided. You see, Peter presented with this crowd of Roman and Jewish authorities come to arrest Jesus and Peter's thought is, no, you're not going to do it. I'll take you all on. See Peter looking to protect Jesus from this armed band. Of course, later in chapter 18, we'll see Peter slinking away following boldly into the courtyard, but then when presented with a simple question, oh, no. But we see here, he's bold, even rash. So how do we react in the midst of challenging circumstances, unfolding events that we see, feel like we've got no control of? I would suggest that we, actually Peter was called to here, are called to trust and obey Jesus. Trust Jesus. He's prepared them for this. He's let them know again and again. He spent time in the upper room preparing them. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be going away. This is what's going to happen. It's going to be painful. 
but the time has come. And Peter and the others have seen Jesus leading the way here, going to his familiar garden. Him stepping out and asking the questions, who is it you want? He's seeing Jesus giving himself over to the authorities. He's called to trust Jesus and so are we. I suggest also we're called to prayer. The other Gospels will tell us that actually what have they been doing in the garden? Jesus goes there to pray. And he tells his disciples, I'm going on ahead, but you pray that you wouldn't fall into temptation. Seek God. Ready for what is to come. For what is now happening. But in the moment, Peter feels the need to act, to do something. And, and as I say, we can step back and on one level we can be drawn to think, Yes, Peter, they've come to arrest Jesus, but no, I'm going to act. I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stand up for him. We've got to do something, surely. Surely there's got to be more that we can do. Similarly for us, we can see so much need around. We can see events unfolding that we just think, what do we do? But surely we've got to do something. Whatever it is, we've got to do something. We've got to do something in this situation. Well, we are called to act. We are called to speak out. We are called to step out in faith. But perhaps sometimes, like Peter, we need to hear the cry of Jesus. Peter, stop. Put your sword away. Trust me. This isn't the way. Did you see we are called to act, we are called to speak out, we are called to see the kingdom of God advance, but we're called to step out in faith. We're not called to take it into our own hands, in our own strength. We're called to trust him, trust the one who saves. We see Peter's example here, lashing out in this one moment and in the next scene, cowering and failing. And actually, the humbling message to us is, no, trust Jesus. Believe him. See what he is doing and follow. So Judas isn't in control. The disciples, Peter, they're not in control. Well, what about the Jews and the Romans? There's a huge sense here that they're in complete control of this situation. They're the powerful ones here. They're here in numbers. They're the leaders. The Jews particularly have brought along a detachment of Roman soldiers. There's a great question among commentators about how big a detachment was or a spiron in the Greek. Well, the biggest estimates are that it could be, that could be a full battalion, that might be the wrong word, of a thousand soldiers. Or it could have been a smaller group of 200. Or in fact, it could have been part of that smaller group of 200. But 
whatever. There's a good collection of soldiers here. It might not be a full, full of thousand, but anyway. They've come. They've got this big band of soldiers. They're here. They're in control. They've got it sorted. We're, we're on the advance. And in a worldly sense, we'd look in and say, well, of course they are. They're in control. They come to arrest Jesus, and they do. They've got the might and the force behind them. They've got the authority of the state behind them, the government, the legal structures. In fact, in Luke's account, in Luke 22 and verse 53, Jesus even tells them, well, he's challenging them a bit. Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. You see Jesus saying it. This is your hour. It looks bleak. Darkness reigns. This is their hour. And yet, they're not in control. This is your hour. And yet, Jesus in the same sentence is revealing their hypocrisy, their cowardice. We're in charge. We're in control here with our lanterns and our weapons. We're in control. We're in charge. Yet we've come under cover of darkness away from the crowds because really we're a bit scared of them. Does Jesus say, every day I was with you in the temple courts and yet you didn't lay a hand on me. Jewish leaders, they don't come even come on their own. They bring, a, bring this battalion of soldiers with them. They're ready for a fight. And then this incredible moment in verse 6. Jesus has gone out to them, out of this kind of perhaps self-contained garden, out to the entrance of it, and he's saying, who is it you want? Or Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says the words, I am he. Oh, great then, we'll take you then. I am he. And at his words, they step back and fall to the ground. At his words, at his very words, they step back and fall to the ground. This huge group of soldiers and temple officials who've come with the very purpose of arresting him, at his word confirming who he is, they fall to the ground. An incredible scene. The Jews and Romans together, a crowd of them come to arrest one man, unarmed in a garden with his small ragtag band of mates, who, if we look in one of the other Gospels, we'll see haven't just got Peter's sword, they might have another one as well. Two of them. But yet with these odds seemingly stacked so far in their favour, them so clearly in control of the situation, at Jesus' words, they fall to the ground. So ultimately, are they in control? Now, there's only one in this story who is really, truly in control. We see this frantic action all around. We see the soldiers coming with the Jews. We see Judas thinking he's made his choice. We see Peter thinking, I've got to do something, I've got to do something. And yet in the middle of all of this storm raging on, Jesus 
calmly, still in control. Here in the garden, in this dark, bleak moment, as the Romans and the Jews come together to arrest him, Jesus is in control. Judas comes leading Jews and Romans in this great force, and yet Jesus is in control. What do we see of Jesus here? He's not hiding. What does it say? He crosses the Kidron Valley and goes to a garden. What does it say about Judas who betrayed him knew the place? Because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. One of the other Gospels would tell us he went there every night that week. He's not hiding. He's not hiding away. In verse 4, we're told he knows all that was going to happen to him. And yet he goes out and asks them, who do you want? As he reveals who he is, they fall back and fall to the ground. It's him who tells them, no, if you want me, let them go. As we see those wonderful words, we see the beauty of this moment, symbolizing what's about to come. Arrest me, let them go. I'm going to die that they may go free. He tells Peter to stop and tells him he submitted to the will of his father. You see that the center of this passage, the, the truth of this passage is this. In the midst of this utter darkness, in the midst of all of this, there is one who is still in control. For us today, in the midst of crippling ill health, in the midst of chronic mental illness, in the midst of financial crisis, in the midst of war raging, in the midst of injustice, in the midst of a nation that is slipping further and further away from God and the truth of this gospel, in the midst of looking out and seeing the influence of evil all around, Jesus is still in control. So I was thinking about this as I was preparing. I was reminded of a song by a guy called Godfrey Bertel. He will know as the author of I Will Set My Face, which we sing, well, we have sung quite a lot over the years. But he wrote a song which is either called Where Oh Where's Your Presence or a kind of extra title, You're Still God. You're Still God. And through that song, he talks about all these different types of situations. Crying out in the midst of pain. Where's your presence, God? And yet I know you're still God. So he talks about when our plans are worthless, you're still God. When we're desperate for healing, you're still God. When governments have no answers to the problems, you're still God's. And speaks of this situation here in the garden. In the final verse. You're still God, even though you were rejected. You're still God, though you were ridiculed, deserted. You're still God. You're still God. You're still God. You're still God, though you suffered execution. You're still God. You're alive and Christ our champion. 
you're still God. You're still God. So I will be still and know that you are God's. You see, in the midst of the Garden of Gethsemane, the Romans and the Jews are arresting him. It looks bleak and horrendous, and yet he is still in control. The God of the universe is still in control. They're arresting him. But how does Jesus describe it? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the plan. This is God's plan. This is the plan that God, Father, Son and Spirit together had planned from the beginning. Jesus is arrested and he's heading to the cross. And in a very real sense, Jesus says in Luke, this is your hour when darkness reigns. And yet, no, he is still in control. The Father's plan is still being worked out. It hasn't gone wrong. This is the glorious salvation plan. Jesus arrested, rejected, ridiculed, deserted, executed. But this is Jesus in his glory. This is Jesus conquering sin and death. This is Jesus declaring, here I am, take me. Here I am, if it's me you're looking for, take me, let these men go free. This is the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. John chapter 10 and verse 15. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. This is what's truly going on in the garden. Jesus giving himself. Jesus giving himself into the hands of the authorities to go to the cross to die. But like he says there in the garden, take me and let them go free. I'll die in their place that they may be forgiven, that they may go free. He dies, I go free. He dies, I have life. He is punished, I am forgiven. Hallelujah. Jesus is in control. What do we learn here? You see, in the garden, we see again the God who is in control. Even in the bleakest, horrendous day, it looks like forces are amassing against him, who are in complete control of the situation, no, he is in control. Not Judas, not the disciples, not even the armed and powerful crowd, but Jesus, arrested and soon to be crucified. Here, in the darkness, in the garden, he is still in control. 
because he is the God who flung stars into space. He is the God who holds the whole world in his hands. He is the God who holds all things together by his perfect will. And so in the light of that, we're called today to come again, humble ourselves. Steve was saying earlier, maybe there is a call for some of us to throw off the old self. To throw it off and recognize there is just one name that I adore. It's the name of Jesus, the one who is in complete control, the one who has done it all. To humble ourselves and to trust him. We don't have all the answers and we're not, all, we're not called to always be the answer, to always need to do something. But we are called to trust him to seek him, to step out in faith with what he has called us to do. And as he leads us. And finally, we're called to remember, even in the darkest moments, even in the midst of despair and confusion and fear and turmoil and any, everything that is going on, there is still one. He is still God. He is still in control. He still loves you. He is still the answer. He is still the one who can help. Because he's in complete control. And he loves you. His, his mercy started us off this morning. His mercy endureth forever. wonderful how things come together. Steve praying that, uh, coming and sharing that. Let's throw off the old self and worship him. Just one name I adore. That wonderful psalm, his mercy endureth forever. His love endures forever. The Sam's prayer as well. He is with us every second. He is there. He is fighting our battles. And we can trust him. Amen.